what is a skill that you learn in graduate school that you think is the most important or relevant in your postgraduate career? Collaborate. Collaborate. Find great collaborators and learn all you can from them. Hello, my name is Kate and this is She Blinded Me With Science. News, history, philosophy, and interviews with me. I'm Kate. Today we have two stories about communication. The first is machine-mediated communi communication, and the second is fish communication. And that second story will be told through interview with Emily Lessig, who is a graduate student in the Ecology, Evolution, and Behavior program here at UT. Before we get into today's science news, I want to give some context by going all the way back to 1909 in a short story called The Machine Stops by E.M. Forrester. This story is an early example of science fiction in which humanity lives underground, individually isolated in hexagonal rooms, and relying on the machine with a capital M for all of their needs. The walls of each compartment are covered in buttons and knobs which direct the machine to service. This button summons a bed, that button controls the lights, etc. People spend all of their time trading ideas through the machine by communicating with plates, basically a video phone. Eventually, the machine starts to break down and, spoiler alert, everybody dies. It's been 115 years. You had time to read that. Here's an excerpt from The Machine Stops, which segues into the PLOS biology paper that I want to talk about. The machine is much, but it is not everything. I see something like you in this plate, but I do not see you. I hear something like you through this telephone, but I do not hear you. That is why I want you to come. Pay me a visit, so that we can meet face to face and talk about the hopes that are in my mind. She replied that she could scarcely spare the time for a visit. She fancied that he looked sad. She could not be sure, for the machine did not transmit nuances of expression. It only gave a general idea of people, an idea that was good enough for all practical purposes, Vashti thought. The imponderable bloom, declared by a discredited philosophy to be the actual essence of intercourse, was rightly ignored by the machine, just as the imponderable bloom of the grape was ignored by the manufacturers of artificial fruit. Something good enough had long since been accepted by our race. So 60 years before the first node-to-node -node computer message was delivered, and 80 years before the World Wide Web was established, E.M. Forrester predicted that machine-mediated communication would be lacking compared to in-person conversation. Now, I could pretty easily segue this into a story on digital dehumanization and the loss of empathetic communication, but that's depressing. So instead, we're going to talk about the progress made in machine-mediated communication, specifically augmentative and alternative communication used by people with neuromotor disease to help them speak. One of the earliest and definitely the most famous examples of electronic alternative communication was developed for Stephen Hawking in 1986. Here's what Hawking had to say on the importance of machine-assisted speech. If you want to communicate like others, which is what people in my position would like, you need to speak. Computerized speech synthesizers have improved a great deal in recent years, and this is important. Not only does one want to be understood, 
but also one doesn't want to sound like Mickey Mouse or a Dalek. This voice of mine may be a bit tinny and Irish, but it is almost human. Speech synthesizers have improved since Hawking spoke at MIT in 1994, but they still haven't been able to capture the prosody of speech. That's the tone, the rhythm, and the harmony. Prosody is not only important, but arguably required for conveying the emotional context of an expression, the presence of sarcasm, and whether it's a statement, question, or command. Prosody also overlaps a great deal with musical composition, which uses tone, rhythm, harmony, and timbre to evoke emotion and narrative. So we're almost ready to talk about the science news. One more piece of information that I think is relevant is that in 2019, the Chain Lab at UC San Francisco recorded brain activity for parti- from participants reading sentences aloud and then mapped the movement of the tongue, lips, jaw, and larynx to the brain activity and were able to recreate those sentences from the brain activity. So here's a couple of examples of sentences read aloud and then recreated using an algorithm trained on the brain activity data. Shipbuilding is a most fascinating process. Shipbuilding is a most fascinating process. The proof that you are seeking is not available in books. The proof that you are seeking is not available in books. This brain-to-speech technology is the next generation of machine-mediated communication for those who can't speak due to neuromotor disorders. Instead of using a switch to select words and phrases from a bank like Stephen Hawking did, someone could trigger a speech synthesizer just by thinking about what they want to say. However, the synthetic speech you just heard was still lacking in prosody, and now we can finally get to this PLOS Biology article from August of 2023, in which Ludovic Bellier and his colleagues were able to recreate a recognizable version of Pink Floyd's Another Brick in the Wall, generated from the brain activity of participants listening to the song. Here's the original song. All was just a brick in the wall And here's the reconstruction. Now, admittedly, the reconstruction sounds like the song is being played underwater, but this is the first instance of a musical reconstruction from brain activity, and it's exciting that it is at all recognizable. This technology is going to greatly improve prosthetic speech, and to explain why, here's a quote by Robert Knight, who worked on both this study and the previous speech reconstruction study. As this whole field of brain-machine interfaces progresses, this gives you a way to add musicality to future brain implants for people who need it. Someone who's got ALS or some other disabling neurological or developmental disorder compromising speech output. It gives you an ability to decode not only the linguistic content, but some of the prosthetic content of speech, some of the affect. That alarm means that it's time to do a nonspecific assay. When we come back, we'll talk to Emily about her research project. 
Welcome back to She Blinded Me with Science. I am still your host, Kate, and today with me in the booth is Emily Lessig, which is a little bit of a lie because we're recording this right after the show since I didn't hit the record button during the show, but Emily is still right here. Hi. Emily is a fifth year PhD student in the Ecology, Evolution, and Behavior program and a member of the Hoffman Lab, and you've gotten to practice this interview once already. Uh, so before we get into your research specifically, uh, I want to talk to you about the graduate school experience and uh, get some advice from someone who's been doing this for five years. So why did you decide to apply for a PhD program and why did you choose this program, Ecology, Behavior and Evolution? Yeah, so it took me a little while to decide to apply and then ultimately attend a PhD program. Uh, so I became interested in animal behavior um, a little bit late in my undergrad. So I, about my junior year, I studied abroad and started conducting research um, looking at animal behavior. And then after that, I decided to pursue my master's to get a better sense of what research questions really interested me. Um, and then after that, I felt more prepared to really pursue a PhD program. Um, and at this point, I really wanted to combine social decision making, which is what I focus on in my master's with neurobiology, um, which is ultimately why I chose the lab and program here at UT. Uh, what do you think is the most challenging aspect of being a graduate student? Yeah, so for me, I think I struggle the most, um, especially in the beginning when I first started here at UT um, with, I would say, work-life balance. So I think for me, I really focused on spending a lot of time in the lab, showing up, being present in the office. Um, I think that is important. Uh, you have a lot of informal conversations. Um, that happen just by being present. Um, but it can also be difficult showing up when things aren't going well, when your research isn't going well, um, and classes aren't going well. So just being able to have a good support system, a good work-life balance, um, and understanding what that means to you. So maybe you take a break in the middle of the day for lunch, you just take a walk and get some sunshine, um, you work out. I think it's really important to have um, yeah, some breaks um, where you're not burnt out and really struggling to be productive because you're really, yeah, forcing yourself to work um, beyond the means that you can. Uh, so this is something that I still uh, find really challenging, but I think is really important to be able to try to focus and, and nail down. So I worked with you in the Hoffman lab for a few weeks last semester. So I know that you're working on individual recognition and cooperation in a fish model. So can you give us some background and an overview of the questions that you're studying? Yeah, so broadly, I look at social decision making and the neural molecular basis of this in a cichlid fish in a number of different contexts, um, including what you mentioned, individual recognition and cooperation. Uh, so for our cichlids, we have two different types. We have dominant males and subordinate males. Our dominant males are very aggressive and territorial, where they defend territories to mate with females. Um, but our males uh, reduce aggression once they're familiar with one another, because it can be very costly co to continuously fight to maintain a territory. Uh, so I study how recognition is involved in this reduction in aggression, 
Uh, so how males recognize familiar individuals, what types of features are involved in this. Um, additionally, I, we see that familiar individuals will cooperatively defend against an unfamiliar intruder. So they'll both aggress towards this intruder. And so I examine how this influences future behavior. Um, so I look at reciprocity as well as how these behaviors are encoded in the brain. And what do you think are some eventual applications of this research? So I was really drawn to these research topics um, as we can think about these processes occurring in animals really beyond fish, including humans. So obviously we have recognition, we have individual recognition. We also see cooperation in humans. Um, we see reciprocity. So I think it's interesting to see how this plays out in other animals. I think it's really cool that we see this in fish. Um, I also think um, about, yeah, the neurobiology of this I find really interesting. So we know that fish have brain regions that are similar to other vertebrates in terms of the function. So if we look at these brain regions that are involved in these behaviors, we can gain insight into the neuromolecular mechanisms across vertebrates. What is the most surprising thing that you've found so far? Yeah, so I think for um, fish, they don't get a lot of credit for how complex some of their decision making is and some of their behaviors overall. Uh, so I think the fact that we have found reciprocity in this um, species is really, really interesting. So in particular, the fact that they have this tit for tat like level of reciprocity. So if um, an individual will cooperate, we see cooperation in the future. If we see, if they defect, we see defection in the future. So I think that really demonstrates that they have some idea of, of what's going on um, and using that information to influence their behaviors in the future, which I think um, implicates a lot of processes like memory and learning and recognition um, and different, yeah, features like that. Do you think that these like consistent choices, these consistent differences in what choices fish are making constitute a personality? Yeah, so it is interesting in some of our data that we do see variation um, in what individuals are doing. So there is, um, I mean, there are individuals overall that will aggress more than others. We also do see um, some that I would say overall cooperate more. So it's almost like we see this bimodal distribution in some of the data. So I think that is interesting in and of itself. Um, so yeah, there could be some that will cooperate no matter what. There could be some individuals that are just more cooperative and there could be some that are actually taking in this information and having that informed decisions. Um, and so, yeah, I think there could be some level of um, yeah, differences that is more of personality. Um, but I think it is kind of maybe bend into these, yeah, more cooperative, um, more defective. And that's why I think some of, um, looking at some of this in the future where you have more interactive or more iterations of some of this where, yeah, they can do this over multiple. Can you define defective? Because in your context, it doesn't mean broken. Yeah, so um, with ours, we can simulate defection. So when we think about cooperation, we have these two individuals um, aggressing towards this intruder. And then for defection, 
Um, it's simulated by placing this one-way mirror so an individual just physically can't see the intruder um, so they're not going to aggress towards that intruder. Um, and this is interesting because the other male can see the neighbor not helping. So he is aware that the individual isn't helping, but the other one's kind of clueless because he just can't see what's going on. Yeah, so that's how we're um, simulating defection here. So you just got back from Germany. You might be a little bit jet lagged. Can you tell us why you were there and what you were doing? Yes, so I just got back on Saturday, um, so I've only been back for a little bit, um, but I was there working on my, my reciprocity experiments. Um, so I just finished all my behavior um, and kind of what I was talking about, just looking at these differences in cooperation and affection um, from these males. And there's a lab there that does um, in-situ hybridization chain reaction, which is really looking at um, gene expression across the brain in different males. And they can do this in their cichlids, um, which has only really been done in zebrafish before. So we are really excited um, that a lab has kind of figured out this protocol. Um, and so I brought my fish brains out there to be able to image them. And they really walked me through this protocol to be able to look at these differences in neural activity um, across these different treatments um, from the behavior that I was looking at. So as a fifth year, you are hopefully approaching your defense in the next year, maybe? Does that sound right? Yeah, hopefully within the next year. <laughs> so the starting place for a thesis for a new student is usually at the conclusion of the previous student's thesis. I know that's how mine is functioning. So if a new student joins the Hoffman lab and picks up where you leave off, what questions do you think they, they should pursue? Yeah, this is a really good question. Uh, so I came in the lab interested in cooperation, which was a study that had um, been done before me. Um, and that's really what fueled my reciprocity studies. Um, and I think my studies on recognition really paved the way for um, what mechanisms or features are used to be able to recognize different individuals. I also think examining how memory plays a role in this, so to what extent individuals remember these familiar individuals, um, and then again, what features are playing a role. Are there, is size what's most important, different colors, um, and then how does context play a role in this as well. Um, and then I think the reciprocity paradigm. I think I've hinted at how cool I find this to be. Um, I think it's really interesting and I think exploring different facets of this um, would be really interesting for another student to explore. So like I kind of talked about different interactions or different iterations of this to see, yeah, if you get defected on once, is that is that sufficient for defection? Um, or are there some individuals that are a little bit more forgiving, um, for instance. Um, and again, I think memory is really important to this um, because they have to remember these previous interactions for them to influence future behavior. So this could be something that's very short. They maybe only care about this um, information on the short term versus if you test them again over the course of days or something, it might not be as yeah important information. All right. Uh, well, thank you for joining me for the second time. 
Uh, even when we were in the booth, I had to have you repeat some sections because I forgot to turn your microphone on. Uh, such is live radio, and uh, that's why we are able to record it afterwards. Uh, do you have any last comments? Yeah, thank you so much. I think it was even better the second time. So, <laughs> yeah, very happy to yeah talk about all of this with you. All right. I will splice that together with the live recording. Now switching over to the live recording, which is the end of Emily answering the question about real world applications of her research. I think a lot of the interest in the topics that um or what really drew me to my research topics is you can think about these processes occurring um, in animals beyond fish. And uh, we can think about this, including humans. So um, obviously we have recognition. We see cooperation in humans. We see this in other animals as well. So I think it's easy to think about examples um, of some of these processes happening um, outside of fish. I think it's super cool that we see these in fish. Um, we also know that fish have brain regions that are similar to other vertebrates in, in terms of function. So if we look at these brain regions that are involved in these behaviors, we can also gain insight into the neuromolecular mechanisms that are involved in these behaviors across vertebrates, so outside of fish as well. All right. Thanks for thanks so much. Uh, let's see. Thanks for talking with me about your research. Yeah. And... There's that sound again. <laughs> uh, I got to run that assay again because it didn't work the first time. So we'll be back in a few minutes. I was the cook. She was the waitress down at Salty Sam Seafood Cafe. But somewhere between the salad and the seafood linguine, that little shrimpy lured her away. Lobster and never flounder. He cast his line around her and they drove off in his cart. Oh, I lobster and never flounder. I octopus his face in, he'll only break her heart. He had a better carp than I did. What did you have? I had a barracuda. What did he have? He had a stingray. Oh, one of the muscle cars. So I said, Squid up and leave me for that piano tuna. If you want to trout someone new, she was the bass I ever had. Now my life has no porpoise. Oh my God, I miss her. Yes, I do. Oh, I lobster and never flounder. He cast his line around her and they drove off in his carp. Oh, I lobster and never flounder. I octopus his face in, he'll only break her heart. Boy, I swordfish, she would come back to me. I'd show her a veil of a good time. You know, I still kelp a picture of her in my is for the halibut. I wonder if she kelps one of me in her perch. Anyway, we better squid all this seahorsing around before you're all bind up in a state of shark. If we make out of this place alive, it'll be a mackerel. Frankly, my dear scallop, I don't give a clam. Oh, I lobster and never flounder. I octopus his face in, he'll only break her heart. Welcome back to She Blinded Me with Science. I am Kate. I'm Emily. 
And today's science quote was by Josh Gruber from the UT Southwestern Medical Center. Dr. Gruber came to UT to talk about Vista immunotherapy and cancer treatment, and I grabbed a quote from him. So share your science and lab quotes with me to be featured at the top of the show so I don't have to harass guest speakers. And while I was doing a nonspecific assay, you heard Clinically Dead by Chad Van Galen. And when I had to redo that essay, assay, you heard I Lobster But Never Flounder, sung by Ole and Sven. Thank you to Emily for being on the show. Yeah, thank you so much. If you have questions, comments, confusions, connect with me via email at sciencekvrx at utexas.edu and or drop me a message on Instagram at sciencekvrx. Audio assets were produced by Indigo Starbeam. You can find him wherever you stream music. Thank you for listening. And remember, you cannot accurately pipette less than half a microliter. Dilute your volume. (laughs) Thank <laughs> you.